Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Andy McDermott, a former pro soccer player, police officer, and current actor who's also the founder and president of Intentional Sports, a new nonprofit facility in Chicago. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's game. That's grantwall.com. First off, let's have a little monologue. Chris Whittingham is still under the weather a little bit this week, so... Please send some positive thoughts his way. I did want to discuss the U.S.'s 3-0 friendly win over Morocco. I'm still here in the stadium after the press conferences following the game in Cincinnati. And, you know, good performance overall tonight from the U.S. men's national team. Uh, in control of most of this game uh, tonight, and just a terrific performance from Christian Pulisic, Showing off that first touch again that is so special, and when he's on with it, really world-class, I would argue. Uh, we saw that on the goal he scored in Panama in March during World Cup qualifying. We saw that first touch again tonight on the first goal. Walker Zimmerman sends a ball over the top, and Pulisic not only controls it, but his first touch actually found more space, gave him a position to threaten in the box against Morocco, and he has a way of slowing the game down in the box with so much poise, more so than the rest of the players on the field, including the Moroccan defenders. He had two Moroccan defenders race past him, and Pulisic with the presence of mind to find Brendan Aronson for the easy finish. And what can you say? When, when Christian Pulisic does that, it's really special stuff. Very few players have that ability. He had a lot of good first touches tonight. And that ability to, to put the first touch in a position that creates greater danger than when he received it is something that you just don't find with too many players. And after the game, I even asked Pulisic, I was like, when you see that ball from Zimmerman coming over the top, you know, are you thinking that's hard to pull down? And, and he kind of smiled and said, you know, for you guys, it probably would be but this is something I've been working on my entire life, my first touch. And I have a book chapter on Christian Pulisic uh, in my 2018 book, and we go into depth on all the things that he tries to do with his first touch and how he has built that skill over the years, going, to, going back to when he was four or five years old. It's such an impressive thing that he can do. He also combined really well with Brendan Aronson tonight. Aronson playing in the central midfield and the way Greg Berhalter explained it afterward was when the U.S. had possession, he viewed it like a 3-2-2-3. Three, two, two, three. And it was a situation where you had Jedi Robinson pushing up, creating width on the left, Tim Weah creating the width on the right, and then Polisic and Aronson between the lines creating, which they did very well together, and Jesus Ferreira playing the number nine position in the first half, Haji Wright in the second, and really good stuff. Something new, a little bit of a wrinkle from Greg Burhalter that fit the personnel well tonight, and I think found spaces in the Moroccan defense. I will say, Moroccan defenders weren't exactly up in the shorts 
of the U.S. attackers, even in the attacking third. And there seemed to be more space than you might usually find um, for players to work with on the U.S. Um, and, and, and maybe the Moroccans in a non-friendly situation might not be that lax. Not to say they were lax, but you know what I mean if you saw the game. Um, Tim Weah with a rocket goal um, where he turned and there was a little bit of space for him to fire that shot uh, past Yassine Bono. And that made it 2-0. And then in the second half, more poise from Polisic in the box. Dead solid penalty. I don't know what the Moroccan player was doing there, but uh, there had just been a good save actually on Aronson. Ball goes out to Polisic. He just has that ability. He doesn't freak out when the ball's at his foot in that situation, sort of slows things down, but can scan very quickly what's going on. And then the challenge comes in, easy penalty. And then Polisic deciding to give the penalty to Haji Wright. And there's a really interesting story that you'll hear more of probably in the coming weeks and months if Haji Wright ends up making the World Cup team about the history of Christian Polisic and Haji Wright. Because as Christian said earlier this week, you know, they were the duo in residency in Bradenton, Florida on the U.S. youth national teams. And back in those days, Haji Wright was viewed as just as big or a bigger prospect than Christian Pulisic was. They're very different. I mean, Haji Wright's always been a very big guy. And, and even for his age, he was. Christian Pulisic was a pretty small guy in those days. And so it was very much a contrast when they were on the youth national teams together. But Haji Wright's 6'4", and just uh, uh, had a terrific season, 14 goals, I think, for Antalya Spor in the Turkish First Division, has really resurrected his club career now, got his first cap tonight, finishes the penalty, and I think is going to take even more confidence moving forward because that number nine position is still very much open. Now, Wright did have an opportunity early in the second half off a really nice counter by the U.S., well worked and got saved. Jesus Ferreira had a couple of good opportunities that he did not finish tonight, even though I thought Ferreira played pretty well otherwise. Just very active defensively in the attack. I like what Ferreira brings. But you got to finish opportunities if you're the number nine. And so we'll see now if they're able to do that in the coming games. Uruguay on Sunday is a good opponent. Morocco's a good opponent. These teams will be in the World Cup. So all of that was good. Aaron Long, 90 minutes tonight. Solid, I thought. He did get a yellow card, and I think it was the 28th minute. And uh, it was probably a smart yellow card to take in the situation. But then played with a yellow for the rest of the game and, and wasn't overly conservative, I thought. Thought he teamed up well with Walker Zimmerman in the first half, Cameron Carter-Vickers in the second half. And there's fine margins, but it does seem like to me that Greg Berhalter favors Aaron Long a bit more over Carter Vickers and Eric Palmer Brown, the guys in this camp. I don't know how he views Long compared to Chris Richards. Personally, I would give the advantage to Chris Richards if we're talking about potential starters at the World Cup. I think Richards and Zimmerman could be quite good. It's obviously very sad that Miles Robinson did his Achilles. I hope he's able to get back in time. I think it's going to be tough. But Aaron Long was, was solid in this game. Reggie Cannon, 
you know, somewhat big opportunity for him, getting the start at right back ahead of DeAndre Yedlin. Serginho Dest would be the starter if he's healthy. But I think there's a, a bit of a competition there, obviously, between Cannon and Yedlin. And Cannon was pretty good. There were opportunities down his side in this game, especially in the first half. But I, I don't feel like that was necessarily all Cannon's fault. Uh, I thought he did get forward a little bit. Joe Scally comes on at left back, interestingly, in the second half. I thought he did a nice job getting forward, had a nice cross attempt that he got from Polisic and then sent across. Um, did get a penalty called on him. It was his first cap as well. Phantom penalty, terrible call. If we had VAR, there's no way that would have been called. Ball don't lie. Penalty smacks off the crossbar, and it ends up 3-0. So overall, a good night. I don't want to make too much of tonight because I, I think Morocco might play a little differently at the World Cup. They might defend a little more strongly. Pretty open game. Um, I, don't, I, I wrote this after the game. I, 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 I hope fans don't get overly excited, or even coaches. You know, I pointed out, you know, Jurgen Klinsmann took away from a friendly in a World Cup year in 2014 against Mexico that Michael Bradley could basically play every central midfield position. It could do that in the World Cup, and that was not a good takeaway, as we learned. All the way back in 1998, U.S. wins a friendly at Austria playing a 3-6-1 under Steve Sampson. Frankie Hayduck dancing uh, after, I think, multiple goals, uh, doing his, like, Bob Marley dance, which was pretty cool. But then the 3-6-1 got used at the World Cup. Some other bad decisions didn't work out too well. So let's not take too much out of this. But it's a good performance, you know. So I hope people... Uh, Feel good about it. We go on to Kansas City from here, Uruguay, on Sunday. And um, there's only five games left for the U.S. to play before the World Cup. So the games are counting down. But thanks for listening. We'll have more coverage as the week goes on. I'll be in Kansas City. I'll have a magazine-style story going up by 9 a.m. Eastern in the morning off this game. And... Uh, if you get a chance, subscribe to my site, grantwall.com. Uh, I'm spending a fair amount of money to be on site at all these U.S. games. Went to every qualifier, all 14 of them. I think there's value there. I hope you think so, too. And if you're already a paid subscriber, please recommend it to your friends because um, word of mouth is one of the best ways to, um, to let people know about this. So I really appreciate that. We also have an interview coming up here with a really fascinating guy in the American soccer community. Here's my interview with Andy McDermott. Our guest now is Andy McDermott. He's the president and founder of Intentional Sports, a nonprofit that's building a big sports facility, including for soccer on the west side of Chicago. Andy played soccer at Northwestern, followed by seven seasons of pro soccer in Germany, Chicago, Indianapolis, and Charlotte. He then spent nine years working as a police officer in Phoenix, and then became an actor with his break in the Will Ferrell film, Everything Must Go, in 2012. From 2017 to 2020, he was the director of culture at the Copa Soccer Training Center in the East Bay of San Francisco. He's obviously a man of many talents. Andy, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. 
Hey, Grant, thanks for having me. Lots to talk about here, but I want to start with intentional sports, uh, what you're doing in Chicago. What is intentional sports? Yeah, thanks. Uh, that is a great question. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I always say it's, it's really exciting and also terrifying at the same time because we are building uh, about 152,000 square feet um, on the west side of Chicago in the North Austin neighborhood, right where it intersects with Belmont, Cragen, Hermosa, and Humboldt Park. So it is accidentally the perfect spot because uh, those that kind of mixture of cultures, um, sports, frankly, might be the only thing that could combine everyone there and bring everybody together under one roof. Um, and it's a pretty rough spot, uh, which is why we have to be there um, because kids in urban centers, as you know, it's not just Chicago, but Chicago is, is kind of the, uh, the prime example because we're on the front page of, of the paper, uh, if, if you still read the paper, uh, front page of the headlines uh, for, for all the wrong reasons these days because kids, in my opinion, kids just aren't getting the chance to play sports and uh, school gets out <clears throat> and then there's no positive place to go. They're just, they just leave and they make their own decisions. And I say it all the time, if, if I was a kid and I didn't have a soccer practice to go to or some activity to go to, then I'd have made bad decisions too. I mean, I was a knucklehead just like any other kid. And if you let kids kind of make their own choices, then they're gonna gravitate towards where they're pulled. Um, so we just really want to give kids the chance to fall in love with a sport, fall in love with a game, fall in love with an activity. And obviously I'm, I'm biased. I'm a soccer guy. So, um, you know, soccer will play a huge role in this facility and, and, uh, you know, every day after school, these kids, they won't pay financially for these programs, but they pay with their academic standards and their attendance and their character building. Um, and if they put, their name on their shirt of intentional sports or Chicago Fire Community Soccer Programs or Jason Hayward Baseball Academy. If they wear that and they're a member of those academies, then they have to they have to earn it by, you know, staying out of trouble and hopefully learning, you know, the lessons that we all learned on a soccer field about self-discipline and dedication and accountability and being a teammate and, and conflict resolution, you know, all the all these things. So um, in a nutshell, it is it is a very safe space. Um, that we're going to bring great programs together and hopefully um, get kids in the building in the after-school time. And then because we're taxes at 501c3, we're able to be self-sustaining in our business model by hosting adult leagues at night after those nonprofit programs uh, in all the different sports, whether it's soccer, futsal, basketball, baseball, um, youth leagues and tournaments on the weekends, camps, clinics, uh, anything, frankly, that will bring some revenue in uh, because we're not trying to make any money here. All of that money will go back to keeping the lights on, uh, but then providing all of those scholarships and those free programs. So uh, we're not trying to, uh, to get rich here. We're trying to make just enough money so that we can provide all those free programming and we don't have to rely upon donations year after year. And tell me a little bit about what the facility includes because it seems like a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think the architects uh, picked up on my insanity level in the first conversation I had with them uh, over Zoom when I was I was still living in California and I was uh, kind of being recruited or tricked into moving back to Chicago uh, to lead this thing. Uh, but I said, hey, look, the, the golden egg in Chicagoland would be a full turf field house. And they said, well, how big is that? And I said, well, minimum FIFA standards is 110 by 70. And they said, 110 feet by 70 feet, that's easy. And I said, no, yards, we, we talk in yards. And they said, whoa. Uh, so then they went to work on, you know, these huge pieces of steel 
Um, and it's absolutely the worst time in history to buy huge pieces of steel. Um, but of course, they, they said, well, if you, if you believe that that's going to um, you know, be the thing on both sides, I call it the internal programs to, to provide all these other programs, and then external to get people to come into the building um, from wherever it is, from the suburbs, from the north side, wherever, to come and, and spend money and contribute to what we're doing, then, then you got it. So uh, they agreed to that. So our turf field house is 40 feet tall by it's 110 yards by 70 yards of FIFA standard turf. Um, and we'll have uh, motorized curtains in there to break it up into four 77 fields or two flag football fields. We'll have motorized batting cages for, I think I mentioned Jason Hayward is, is one of our champions here from the Chicago Cubs, uh, the Jason Hayward Baseball Academy. Um, and uh, so we'll be able to use that turf really well. And then quickly, the other spaces are uh, four basketball slash futsal slash volleyball courts. So 12 hoops or uh, four courts like that. Um, and then we'll have a strength and conditioning center, both inside and outside, locker rooms, restrooms, a big multi-purpose room, uh, which we can use for sports or um, music theater, performance, uh, arts. Um, we can also have about 450 seats in there so that we, uh, you know, it's in the plans to do a guest speaker series where once a month we have someone like Grant Wall come in and speak to kids and, um, and we do coaching education and referee certification and licensing and things so that people from the community can become soccer coaches or refs or umpires. And, and that's really where this place makes a difference is not if Andy McDermott is running this place, but in a couple of years, if someone from the community is running this place and then our entire staff is from the community and then it's generational change because eventually these kids will be coaching their own kids in this place. And, and that's when I think we've really made a difference. And sort of what's your timeline? for getting going opening up yeah so uh if if i could share with you a drone photo right now you could see um it's it's massive it's a it's a cavernous space um and the, the great thing is it's you know that land has been vacant for 40 years uh so to to repurpose that 10 acres and we got some help from the city of chicago from the state of illinois and i could tell you about you know the fundraising later but it's been really uh one amazing surprise like miracle after miracle to to get this far um, but we, construction tells me that by end of October, November, uh, we should have the keys to be able to at least do um, soft opening events, staff training, uh, maybe a, a few celebrity games uh, in there uh, by the end of the year, and then open for programming Q1 2023. On your board, I noticed there's some very familiar names uh, on the board of intentional sports, including Aguji Anyewu, Hugo Perez. Charmaine Hooper, Lisa Byington, a few others as well. How did they get involved? What is their involvement? Well, I really just guilt tripped them into saying yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, they, they've been an amazing um, startup board. Um, you know, unashamedly, I, I, uh, I needed some folks with some networks and some influence um, and just to lend some legitimacy to what we're doing um, because nobody cares who Andy McDermott is. But uh, when, you know, Hugo Perez, um, you know, kind of puts his name behind something, then you know that it's it's not just quality football, but uh, he's, you know, ever since I met him in the East Bay of San Francisco, when we were in development for that USL uh, championship team out there um, and I was 
uh, tasked with being the sporting director and start to create that program, I, I went and had coffee with Hugo because he was in the area and was gonna. My plan was to beg him to be the head coach uh, and technical director of that of that team. Um, and I just really fell in love with his uh, his view towards the game and development and um, you know technical play and um, but also he he just said um, you know there has to be a community aspect to this uh, you know he wouldn't have done that just for money uh, he said how do we get the community involved in this and that resonated with me and just stuck with me and then here three years later he was you know my first call and said hey Hugo we're, we're gonna do this in this place and uh, and he before I even asked him to be a board member he said well, yeah, you want me to come and do some clinics? When do you want me to come? And I was like, you're, you're perfect. You know, you're exactly the kind of um, champion for this. So he's just one example, but then Lisa and I were friends at Northwestern and she's obviously amazing uh, in, the, in the sports broadcasting space. Um, and then uh, Charmaine Hooper and I trained together when I was with the Chicago Stingers and her husband Chuck Codd was a teammate of mine. She was playing for the Chicago Cobras at that time and then the Atlanta beat of the old, uh, what was it, WUSA? Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, and um, and I just remember, um, you know, I think someone made the mis made the mistake of telling me, um, hey, Charmaine is is training with you guys. Um, so take it easy, make sure that you don't injure her. And then I was, I think on the ball, uh, and absolutely got, you know, crushed by Charmaine. <laughs> uh, so I, I learned quickly, don't take it easy around Charmaine because, uh, she's faster and better and stronger than you anyway. So, um, and, uh, and, and on and on with that board, it's just, you know, some really good humans who have helped, um, lend their, uh, kind of their network, their ideas, um, and, and helping get this place started. And it's interesting, we're recording this right around the time the, the U.S. men's national team plays El Salvador again in, in the Nations League, and that's El Salvador coached by Hugo Perez, U.S. coached by Greg Berhalter, who lives in Chicago. And I've seen a couple of quotes from, from Greg about your project. He, he admires what you're doing. Uh, do you have a connection with Greg in, in Chicago as well? I have, and, uh, and, and I'm a huge fan. You know, I know uh, soccer Twitter, U.S. soccer Twitter, uh, always has a love-hate relationship with whoever our head coach is. Um, I'm a big fan. I know him to be a really smart guy, and uh, and I always tell people, look, I promise he's trying his best to win. <laughs> it's not like he has a has a uh, any other uh, desire here than um, win every game. Uh, so that that said, um, off the field, um, I've really gotten to uh, appreciate him as uh, a champion for giving everybody an opportunity to play. And, uh, and he just has a heart for equity and diversity and inclusion. And so he came and played. We had a, what I call a loading dock legends game uh, last summer, where uh, the only place that's not under construction out there is the old loading dock in front of the Glidden Paint Factory, or the old Glidden Paint Factory, which is now a community center. So uh, some Northwestern soccer alumni uh, pitched in to get that resurfaced, and uh, we resurfaced it, um, put some, some lines down, some goals, and now it's this street soccer pitch, which is a pretty cool, um, space there for, for us to play with some kids while we're under construction. But anyway, Greg came and played, uh, Oguchi came, 
uh, Demarcus Beasley came, Charmaine came, um, and a handful of kind of uh, some, some local legends uh, from the women's side and the men's side uh, came and played in this legends game. And Greg and I completely cheated because uh, our other two, it was 4v4, our other two was my 14-year-old son and his 14-year-old daughter, both of whom are uh, much quicker and better uh, at soccer. And, and, uh, and it, it gets competitive as it always does when you have a bunch of old guys like us uh, we made it to the finals lost to Gooch's team uh, so Gooch has the bragging rights uh, this year but uh, we fully let uh, little Lily and Luke score all the goals and we uh, parked the bus back in front of the goal um, but Greg introduced me then to a couple of other great people who have really helped out um, the US Soccer Foundation and uh, Ed Foster Simeon uh, his team there have been awesome his guy Alex Bard has connected me we're gonna have two of their Musco lighting uh, mini pitches out front of our facility, which I'm, I'm just really excited about. I mean, the inside of the facility is going to be amazing, but uh, that will be kind of the first thing that people see when they pull up is these two little mini pitches with great walls and lights and, um, you know, 3v3, so it's perfect for old guys like me because it's only, you know, 20 yards long. Um, but I think that that, I believe that will be a really cool cultural spot where people can just come and do pickup games and just hang out and and that's what we want it to be is just a safe space for people to gather and i do want to get into sort of your many varied careers but before i do that um you know if people want to learn more about what you're doing with intentional sports or even support it with contributions how can they do that yeah thanks for asking uh that's you know full disclosure this is my first foray into the nonprofit world and so it's it's always awkward for me to talk about fundraising, um, but I'm learning that there are people with resources that, that want to give it to good things, and maybe sometimes they just don't know what it is. And so every year they donate or give a tax-deductible contribution to someplace, and United Way is amazing, and, and Susan G. Komen is amazing, um, but maybe they, you know, they want to give to a smaller um, a place that's really trying to do something good just like they are, but I promise that we need the money. <laughs> so um, intentionalsports.org is our website, and there is a support link there where you can you can donate, I think, up to $10,000 on the website there. And if someone really wants to be a hero, then um, they can email me um, directly, and that's andy at intentionalsports.org. Um, pretty simple, um, but we, uh, you know, we're, we're a... Uh, federal 501c3 and, and everything is monitored and every dollar goes straight to what we're doing. So uh, no one's getting rich here, but if you have some extra money, we can certainly put it to use. That's for sure. No, it's a great project. And I, I would encourage people to check out the website. Um, just uh, a lot of good information there. And, and um, you know, I, I do want to ask about your career because you've had what you would call probably, I don't know if it's career changes or, or just these very different things that you've done. And yet soccer has been part of what you're connected to for a really long time as well. What, what was your pro soccer career like? Um, I would say, you know, in college, I was, I was uh, you know, what I would call like a box to box number 10, where, you know, at Northwestern back in those days, we had really, really amazing students who also played soccer. So uh, I was I was probably a more on the soccer side than on the student side. Uh, uh, so I tried to do way too much on the field, but uh, had a had a great college uh, experience. But then met uh, Brett Hall, 
um, when the Chicago Fire was starting, um, they uh, they connected me with Brett and they said, hey, we'd love to have you come in. This was when Bob Bradley was at the fire. Um, but uh, we see you as a as a training player. We'd love for you to play with this team called the Chicago Stingers, which I had grown up watching the Chicago Sting and then Chicago Power. Um, so I knew of them, but uh, I was like, look, you know, I'm, I'm graduating from Northwestern. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if this is the career path. And then I met Brett Hall, who played for the Sting, played for the Power. Um, and he just basically grabbed me and retaught me the game of soccer uh, in the craziest possible way. But he said, look, there's there's piano players on every team. If you want to play longer, then you got to learn how to be a, the piano carrier. So... That's basically what I did. I was that, uh, you know, medium level talent that uh, could run all day and uh, was was somewhat athletic. Um, but really, I'd rather die than lose. So um, for some reason, they kept putting me in the in the starting lineup and, and then uh, made it up to the A-League, went over to Germany for uh, for a half a season um, with Sport Club Freiburg over there with their mm -hmm. their third division team and um just fell in love with with that culture and uh you know really learned the game even more so um i'm jealous of the kids these days i, I know i sound like an old man um, but they're just introduced to the culture of football so much earlier than you know people our age where uh, i think we've talked about this before um the 94 world cup was the first time i ever saw international football um, because we didn't have the internet. It didn't exist. You know, we, we didn't have uh, NBC Sports or whoever it was uh, showing the Premier League every Sunday. So um, that was the first time I'd ever seen world-class players uh, playing in person. Um, and uh, and so, you know, my professional career was was hilarious. You know, back when we made $12 a year instead of, uh, instead of $12 million. Uh, but some of the greatest times of my life, some of my best friends still uh, just avoiding getting a real job as, as long as we could and bus trips to Canada and, and all the rest of it, man, it was, it was hilarious. And then you spent nine years working as a police officer in Phoenix. How did that happen? Man, um, you know, I knew after 9-11 happened, um, I was in Indianapolis playing for the Indiana Blast, an A-League team in the old USISL. I knew I was going to serve in some way and um, actually started the... FBI selection process and the Secret Service selection process um, shortly thereafter while I was still playing soccer. Uh, and then uh, I was about 27, 28 and realized I was playing against 17 and 18 year olds who were faster and better than me and, and uh, I was never going to be David Beckham. Um, so the time became right. And then my wife got pregnant with our oldest uh, named Cruz, who's now 17, impossibly. Um, and I just knew, uh, so I, I actually had, I had taken the entrance physical for the Navy SEALs um, and passed that and had the uh, Army Ranger recruiters in our living room. And then my wife told me that uh, she was expecting and she said, uh, there's no way that you've been, you know, playing pro soccer for the last eight years um, being on the road and now all of a sudden I'm pregnant and you're going to go overseas for a year, year and a half. And God bless the guys and the girls who are, are serving our country. But uh, she just made it pretty apparent that she was not going to uh, raise that baby by herself. Uh, so she said, you you can do what you want to do. I know you better than anybody, but you have to be home at night. And, and so um, I... Uh, Took a job as a cop thinking it might have been a temporary thing while I waited for the FBI and the Secret Service um, and then just fell in love with being a cop, uh, even though, you know, I had never, never thought that way. I, I love everybody. You know, I'm always smiling and laughing. I could never write a speeding ticket because that would have been so hypocritical. Um, but uh, just fell in love with uh, being able to help people every day, make a difference every day. 
And I always, you know, tell that that one story. The soccer ball is kind of the undercurrent of my life, um, taking me all over the world and introduced me to some of the best things and still opening doors. Uh, but uh, it might have been most important when I was a cop because I was actually part of the tactical unit, which meant that I didn't have to, you know, go investigate accidents or, or write speeding tickets or anything like that or take, take calls I didn't want to take. Um, we just uh, got to do operations and... and um, and you know some of that stuff but when we didn't have an operation or a training uh, I was free to uh, go and, and do what I wanted and I had a soccer ball in, in the truck and, and could go into the housing project which was uh, primarily Hispanic families uh, in Phoenix and I speak Spanish uh, so I would go out and, and juggle a ball and find kids who were playing and uh, for the first few months no one would let me play <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, after a while they'd let me play or kick around with them and then uh, after about six eight months uh actually the moms um started to trust me enough to come out and say hi and then a couple months later they'd come out with a plate of tamales and 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 want to talk and then i could finally say so you know who's who's scaring your kids um who's who's really doing bad stuff in the neighborhood how can i help you and they would look both ways and then they'd kind of whisper you know what apartment number or whatever and we actually did a lot of good work um, because of those relationships and I say you know I just accidentally started some community policing there I had no intention of it but it was really because of soccer ball you know only because I could do a few tricks that that we ended up uh, having a pretty good relationship with with people in housing projects there so it's a really good story and and shows one how soccer can connect you with people but also isn't that sort of what policing's supposed to be I mean it maybe isn't always anymore Yep, yep, and and you know, I, again, God bless the guys and girls who are who are doing that job. I think it's the hardest time in history um, to be a cop. That you know, people don't realize that that you know, someone will call the the police for help, and it's it's the worst moment of their life, right? Like no one ever calls the cops to come to a high school graduation. You know, it's always pretty much the worst day of your life, and then the cops show up, and then everybody else has their cell phone cameras and is videoing. So not only does that that lady officer need to come there and solve that problem, but everyone's recording every single thing that she does, you know. So it's just so hard. Uh, but yes, I am I am hugely um, invested in in this project in Chicago and with the Chicago Police Department um, and the Fire Department and having those guys and girls. Uh, in the facility, not just in uniform, but in shorts and a t-shirt, playing basketball with kids, playing soccer with kids. And so, um, you know, those those kids can see cops as more than just a uniform. They can see them as, as humans and then vice versa. So I think that long term, that does a lot more than if the cops just have to respond and arrest someone who has committed a crime, because that obviously there's not enough jails. Uh, there's not enough cops, uh, you know, and and uh, and it's not solving anything long term. We just we just kind of continue that cycle. So. And what led to your acting career? Oh, uh, they they came and filmed a movie uh, in Scottsdale when I was a cop, um, and uh, with Will Ferrell called Everything Must Go and Michael Pena, Rebecca Hall, uh, Laura Dern. It, it it's a it's a good movie. Uh, it didn't uh, it didn't crush it at the box office because it's not his uh, typical. Ricky Bobby or uh, Step Brothers or something. Um, he he was very good in it, in my opinion. But uh, they, I had been modeling um, for extra money ever since college. It was kind of my part time job. My modeling agent said, "Hey, they want to see you for this role." I was like, "That's a real movie. They're going to see real actors." And he was like, "You're such a coward. You've always wanted to do this. Just go and try." So I showed up, and the and the recurring joke became that the casting director said. Uh, 
hey, Andy, that was that was a great read, but that costume is freaking amazing. I don't think he said freaking, but uh, I know we're on a podcast. Is that freaking amazing? Where'd you get that costume? And I said, you know, it's not a costume. I'm on my way to work. And he said, you're a real cop? I said, yeah. He said, oh, the director's going to love that. So somehow tricked my way into being in this movie and was on set, had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and, you know, when they say action and there's, you know, on a big movie like that, there's 100 people standing around from the grips to the audio to the to the wardrobe. And uh, there I am with these two scenes with just uh, Will Ferrell. And, of course, I had memorized my lines, his lines, everybody else's lines. And he had all the lines of the world. So he was asking me, like, hey, what's my line there? You know, and I was like, this is so surreal. And then he's such a sweetheart of a guy. Uh, he just wanted to hear soccer stories and, and cop stories. And fast forward to now, I mean, this was 2011. So way before the LAFC stuff. Um, but... Uh, he had told me that he was a big soccer fan. He coached his kids in AYSO. He, he I think his wife is from Sweden. Uh, I don't want to get that wrong, but uh, so it kind of introduced him to global football. Um, and and I said, uh, I said, well, man, uh, I just got to ask. Like you think about uh, remember the Titans and uh, the Natural and um, you know so, and Hoosiers. Some of these movies that I was like raised on in sports. Uh, how come no one's ever made that great drama movie about soccer? I mean, victory aside, of course, uh, we all love that movie. And uh, he looked at me with a straight face and he said, what, you didn't see Kicking and Screaming? <laughs> and I was like, well, well, I mean, yeah, that one, of course, but uh, how about another one? And he, and he said, well, maybe you need to write it or something like that. So um, I fully blame Will because at the end of the night, uh, they said, hey, that's a wrap for Andy McDermott. And, and they give you a hand and I'm looking around like, what is going on? And he came up and gave me a hug and he said, hey, Andy, I just I just want to let you know, I hope this isn't the last thing you do because I think it's what you should do. And uh, and I just remember thinking like, that's the worst thing uh, to tell a wannabe actor, <laughs> like gas gasoline on a on a dumpster fire like me. Um, so we ended up get starting to get some calls from L.A. after that film. And um, I just remember one specifically, I was sitting in briefing uh, as as a cop my phone rang and it was LA area code and it turned out to be the executive producer of the movie Argo uh, with Ben Affleck and he said hey Andy yeah. uh, just just wanted to see if you could come in or what time you could get here because Ben wants to meet you for a uh, a kind of a, a supporting uh, featured role as uh, one of the soldiers uh, in this movie he's doing called Argo and I said hey that's amazing um, I could I could probably get there first thing tomorrow morning and he said why and I said well I, I actually live in Phoenix you know I'm, I'm a cop and he hung up on me and I never heard from them again and I just realized you know there's a hundred guys like me in in my lane uh, you just you had to be there so uh, it's a little bit better now obviously post pandemic where now I audition in my basement uh, all the time uh, from from zoom or whatever but back then you just had to be in LA so we moved out there in 2012 uh, kind of gave up the the career sold the house uh, rented a place sight unseen we knew nobody um, we had four kids at the time so my wife is as insane as I am uh, I think she was just happy that I would not get shot at for real anymore she was happy that I would play a cop on TV and, and not not in real life uh, and uh, we, we were out there for almost five years um, you know, just kind of working full time, and anytime the phone rang, the answer was yes, unless it was something you know completely inappropriate. Uh, everything from commercials to TV shows to movies uh, to photo shoots, uh, you name it. It was a, a full time hustle for those those five years. Very cool. Thanks for sharing. How often does soccer come up with various actors you've met? All the time. Uh, you know, I, I 
am just completely stupidly lucky that at age five um, I was a spaz of a kid. Uh, I mean, only only making fun of myself there, not anybody else. Um, but I'm sure that I would have been diagnosed with some kind of uh, hyper or ADHD or something. And, and my mom just said, you have to go outside and play something. Uh, so I think she signed me up for soccer because it was the most running. No one knew anything about soccer back in 1980. Um, even though my dad was a, a college baseball player, uh, much to his chagrin, I chose soccer. Um, and then he ended up coaching us for a while just because someone had to. And uh, I just remember the old story was he had a bag of balls and would put us in a line and would take the ball out and throw it at us. <laughs> and then we'd have to control it and then kick it as far as we could you know and that was that was our soccer development at age six seven um but uh yeah so just stupidly soccer found me and now i've been on fields for 40 years um as a player and a coach for the last 25 and now you know i've gone through the the a license course and i'm a director of a of our kids community club out here called palatine celtic which is a great community club and um so I, Honestly, you meet someone who's a, a football fan, and, and very quick story, I was just in Mexico, in Tulum, Mexico, filming on a show called Mosquito Coast for uh, mm -hmm. Apple, Apple Plus, and I had watched season one, and there's this great character in the show who's, who's uh, the bad guy, and I walked in the makeup trailer, and there he was sitting there, and, uh, and he looked at me in a southern accent and just said, hey, uh, you must be Andy uh, playing uh, Hicks, and I said, yes, sir, uh, I said, big fan of what you do, I mean, you're extra creepy, <laughs> and he said, uh, oh, that's a strange compliment, but thank you. Anyway, I had a conversation with him uh, for about 15 minutes in a southern accent, went back to my trailer, and as you do, did some uh, internet stalking on Ian, Ian Hart is his name and uh and turns out he's from liverpool and he lives in london and he's been in harry potter and a ton of other stuff he's an amazing actor he's played john lennon a couple times um and then i saw him on set and i said ian uh i'm a lifelong soccer guy like are you are you red or blue and and he said blue like i bleed blue and then he uh, I said, you know, you're from Liverpool, and, and he said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not smart enough, or I'm not clever enough to switch back and forth between my accents, so I just stay in this character, and, uh, and it was amazing, and it wasn't until a night while we were there, um, you know, staying at this nice resort, and it's just two of us, because you don't bring your family when you're working, um, that we had a couple of drinks, and then I finally heard his, his normal accent, and, and uh, we were talking about Everton, and he was, you know, um, just really hopeful that Frank Lampard could could write the ship, and since then they have, and they're safe. And um, but uh, talk about a surreal experience being in Tulum, Mexico, uh, sitting next to a guy from Liverpool, talking in an American Southern accent uh, about Everton, and uh, and talking about you know what what players uh, should be there and what players shouldn't be there. And I said, man, only a soccer ball, you know, could could have this conversation going on right now. You know, absolutely fantastic. Andy McDermott is the founder and president of Intentional Sports, a nonprofit that's building a big sports facility, including for soccer on the west side of Chicago. Andy, good luck with it. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, my pleasure, Grant. Thanks so much, man, and, and have fun tonight. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Andy McDermott, as well as producer Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.